वेलकम टू सन टॉक Talkers around the table today discuss the argument over quarrel. We'll think about quarrels, disagreements, arguments, disputes, confrontations, gossip, compromise, backbiting, and other culturally negative forms of interaction. We'll wonder what psychological, social. a revolutionary purpose for serve the quarrels have more to do with form or content why are spoken quarrels more exciting than written what's the best way to have difficult conversations about taboo topics how does a society develop norms and laws to settle disputes and what are the underlying principles at work and is it possible to have a world without quarrels and disagreements and would it be an utopia or a dystopia we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers around the table today dr arudra bora who teaches at iit delhi and works at the intersection of philosophy and law also bn patnaik has been a student of language and literature for many years and works in the area of generative linguistics and has also worked of late uh, in areas of sarala mahabharata he used to be at iit kanpur and now lives in bangalore and somasekar sundaration who is a lawyer and a columnist and is a partner with jay sagar in bombay also patnaik maybe we set the ball rolling with you um to understand what a quarrel is to begin with as you see it from a linguistic standpoint and um maybe we just start off with that and we'll unpack it as we go along um, my interest in quarrel uh, uh, arises out of uh, the theoretical questions that uh, that are raised around this notion of quarrel mm-hmm. uh for instance uh, uh the most uh, influential uh, theory of uh, conversational analysis mm-hmm. uh, which includes uh, a notion of conversational structure to my mind has been given by h p grice grice in a very influential paper published in 1975 it's called logic and conversation mm-hmm. an excellent paper to read uh he gave us an idea of the structure of conversation mm-hmm. and he also in the and same and these are spoken conversations these, these are, are oral these are, conversations these are spoken conversations sure and he also gave us an idea it's a theoretical issue so mm-hmm. he, he also gave us an idea um about how we understand sentences which have non literal meaning okay so that so i mean i find i i found his work interesting that's fascinating yeah yeah i found the work fascinating because the same theory could handle the problem of assigning non literal interpretations metaphorical ironical etc interpretations to utterances mm-hmm. which is a purely which is a which is a linguistic issue mm-hmm. and conversation which is 
also a linguistic issue because it involves language, but it goes beyond it. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, so when you say non-literal, what do you mean? You mean what it implies, the implications yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What it what really it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, to take an example, uh, in fact, you know, this, this theory of uh, non-literal interpretation by Grice mm-hmm. is very similar to an ancient Indian theory mm-hmm. uh, proposed by our rhetoricians Mm-hmm. about lakshana, banjana and avidha meanings. Okay. Avidha meaning is a literal meaning. Mm-hmm. Lakshana and banjana, without going into any details, uh, can be roughly uh, said as, uh, translated as suggestive meanings, you know. But I'm sure. not going into details. Sure. Say, for example, if you say, if the husband uh, says to the wife mm-hmm. that, uh, imagine the times, you know, where the uh, house of a rishi, or mm-hmm. house of a, you know, rishi, where the, in the evening the, the sacred fire should be lit. And the husband asks, the, the, tells the wife that, look, the sun is setting. Okay. So the wife doesn't mean by the sun is setting that the sun is setting. Right. Because she thinks that why should, the, why should my husband say something which is so obvious? It's not informative. So probably this is an indirect way of saying that you go and light the sacred fire. Uh-huh. So this is the meaning uh, that is not, it's not literally, the, the literal mean, it's not literally said, uh-huh. but it is implied. So the theory of how we arrive at these implied meanings is something which both Grice and uh, our the rhetoricians many years ago. So where does quarrel come into this? Yeah. <clears throat> now, if you look at Grice's theory, mm-hmm. uh, in very, very briefly, Sure. He postulates uh, this is a theory of conversation. Okay. And let me say it here that uh, see the the Western uh, philosophical come linguistic tradition in this respect has been influenced by very much by Locke, by the Locke. philosopher Locke, sure. who thought Induction that, that conversation mm-hmm. is intended to disseminate one's work information which you know which is basically an information uh, uh, conveying uh, system mm. the main goal of conversation the main goal of human interaction is to ma- convey information is, is to convey information sure okay so first the goal of language is to convey to communicate the goal of communication is to convey information he added discoveries and all that but essentially convey information mm-hmm. so and then, you know, there is a theory of information. What counts as information? What doesn't count as information? Mm-hmm. So what is obvious doesn't count as information. What mm-hmm. is non-obvious counts as, inter- you know, as That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so for example, I mean, one of the stock examples from textbooks, if you say, the man bit the dog, mm-hmm. that's informative. But mm-hmm. the dog bit the man is not. Because mm-hmm. one is expected, the other is not. Mm-hmm. So based on this kind of an idea, you know, he, he gave us the theory of conversation. But we know that language is not really intended only for uh, communication or the language is not intended, for example, language is intended for self-expression. Mm-hmm. And the goal of language is not, you know, the goal of uh, communication is not merely to exchange information. Again, Professor Patnaik, where does quarrel come into all this? I'm just coming to that. Sure. I've, you know, I've been a little more elaborate, so I'm sure. coming to that. So, so, so Grice came up, came up with a theory of conversation. Mm-hmm. He said some, he posited something like the cooperative principle. Okay. And the cooperative principle would mean that two persons who are conversing with each other have something to talk about, or either it is agreed upon or not agreed upon, etc. But they cooperate. They, they cooperate. Now, they... when it comes to quarrel, mm. is it like that? Mm. It's obviously not. Mm. 
the cooperation breaks down yeah the cooperation so the cooperation so this this is sure. not that you know two people have always decided that okay we are going to sort of uh, exchange and notes about uh, Uh, or exchange information, or engage ourselves in 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 ways in which we are going to be mutually helpful. Sure. Or nothing like that. So the call, the call. I mean, the the a call or something like a, a call. See, violates this kind of an expectation. Mm. And this is not mine. This is what Grice himself pointed out. Mm. But what Grice did not point out was that whatever else he posited, mm-hmm. that you know, a normal, I mean, a, a rational conversation, uh, sort of abides by certain kinds of maxims which he said. Mm-hmm. You know, manner. Sort of um, quality, manner, quantity, etc. Relevance. So, just to give one example, uh, quality is we must say. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. We must not say anything for which we don't have evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, without going into further details, now which core can can we expect a core to to abide by this kind of a requirement that? uh you know i mean it it would uh, it would uh, that no no misinformation or no deliberate uh, misinformation would be used can we say that calls are not sort of like this and uh, to conclude this part for example uh, grais says that you know a conversation has to be polite has to be brief has to be relevant but in quarrel i mean it is neither brief nor always relevant nor certainly polite and why why is there this distinction between text and talk in what sense is a spoken conversation more problematic uh, compared to the written no the, the you know, from the point of view of the theory that mm-hmm. i just you know outlined i mean in brief both of them are problematic okay but the difference between uh, because the same question to arise uh, in uh, but what happened, the main difference is that uh, that when a core is converted to a text Mm-hmm. there is a reflection on the call mm-hmm. there are you know there are ways in which something can be communicated that that something can be communicated something cannot be communicated in writing mm-hmm. because in when we speak then that is you know once it is spoken that is over but sure. when you put something into writing that writing itself becomes a means of you know our contact without tradition so it's a serious medium so people sanitize those calls That's interesting. So, I think you know. I think why don't we travel to the world of law? So I think there are a few interesting aspects there about cooperation, politeness, um, and so on. How 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 do you think of aspects like negotiation in the world of law? And um, for example, when you negotiate agreements or things of right. that sort, or even in a litigation, or even yeah. in a litigation, yeah. what are the principles at work? How do you see it? Yeah, to me, um, quarrel is an integral, endemic, uh, intrinsic element of humankind. Mm-hmm. uh we all think we all have views and when two views don't match uh you have a contentious situation mm-hmm. uh the difference in views could be over a nuance it could be over a much deeper component and you would have what is uh, what could popularly be called a quarrel mm-hmm. uh, to me wearing a lawyer hat if i look at it etymologically mm-hmm. a quarrel is one where a reason is not involved whereas an argument to settle a quarrel is one where you bring in reason and make the person you're quarreling with see your point of view that's interesting so mm. to me uh, our very existence uh, is meant to bring up quarrels mm-hmm. society without quarrel would be dead <laughs> uh, i look at quarrel and arguments as a pro social element of society uh, if everyone has the same view you would be in a 
you'd be in a state where state of status there is absolutely no yeah. difference of opinion mm. and what enriches uh, one's mind and one's and therefore the minds of the entire society is the difference of view and the diversity of approach and therefore there is a need for quarrel and which is why in a legal context you really adopt an adversarial system of resolving uh, differences of views yeah you go head on and there is a so, pro and there's an anti so it's meant to it's meant to let ideas collide mm. of course in a justice context a mm-hmm. judge's role is really not to see let the better man win uh, mm. his job is to render justice mm-hmm. so it's not the quality of the argument that wins that settles a quarrel mm-hmm. in a justice environment right but let's say in a transactional commercial environment right how much can you make the other counterparty see a point of view accommodate your so there's an element request. of persuasion almost that's right is, there is mm-hmm. a suasive element suasive you have to element. persuade there there would be again varying degrees of aggression and approach and attitudinal elements mm-hmm. that come into it element of style yeah mm-hmm. likewise i was also reflecting on the earlier comment about uh, the written versus the spoken mm-hmm. uh, i would think that that line is perhaps blurring now okay uh, most of the life we lead uh, is written actually like a lot of conversations are on sms on text on media like instant messaging mm. and so the thought process that would normally go into reflecting on content when you commit something to writing is fast eroding mm-hmm. and in fact uh, i do catch myself having conversations more in writing uh, than verbal with people i converse the most with Was that so emails <laughs> and SMSs and uh, instant messaging as a medium, social and, media as a and platform. And do you do you bemoan it, uh, Soam, or it's just a matter I of fact? I don't bemoan it. I've just come to accept it, and mm. it's it's reality today. Mm. And uh, even when you look at a regulatory situation or an enforcement of law situation, there's so much of imprint that human conduct leaves behind today yeah. in writing <laughs> that it's very difficult to. mask your views it's very difficult to mask your thought process or or try and paper over uh, something that you want to say because life is very instant now but are there situations where you can where you can only argue orally and the situations where you can o- only argue in written in the written form yeah i still think there's enormous value in uh, resolving a quarrel face to face because uh, the literal uh, text uh, and as you said you know they I'm sure the, there's a non-linguistic side to a lot of uh, these arguments and negotiations, isn't it? The stuff that cannot be written down. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would think so. So very often when you meet someone face to face, even a smile or a nod or the the concern in the eyes expressed, the body language that you see conveys things that no amount of written text can convey. So even in a negotiation situation, in a legal practice, you ultimately distill some issues which can't be resolved. because the quarrel some uh, nature of those issues yeah. is something that requires an ultimate meeting and that's where you really shake hands and you you end up resolving that quarrel so it's interesting to see how uh, things are evolving and changing over time where a substantial part of resolution is in fact in writing and literal and but you still need the face to face resolution of a quarrel Where But is the process of resolution itself written, or there's just the stamp of authority or stamp of legitimacy at the end? If you know what I mean, like in a contentious situation, is a stamp of authority and legitimacy. I mean, all disputes in all societies 
ultimately get resolved in a supreme court of that jurisdiction yeah the supreme court is always right because it's final yeah. it's not final because it's always right yeah <laughs> so all quarrels have to come to an end with some authority mm-hmm. that's on the contentious side mm-hmm. but in a non contentious situation you may choose not to have a relationship you may choose not to enter into that transaction because your differences are irreconcilable right so you don't wed you actually part ways and you don't uh, get into but you would never have a case where the supreme court turns its hands up and says you know this is too difficult sorry we can't comment in this not on questions of law or on, on matters of, of justice which is the matter of justice that's right. alluding that's to right. interesting uh, arudra maybe we jump to you and you know let's see what philosophy of law has to offer and you've done some work in the areas of consent and coercion and things of that sort uh, we've discussed angles and aspects like suasion for a while what is your take on quarrel you know i want to go back to what professor patnaik said and it's in fact this connects to both these points uh it seems to me that there's uh, maybe it's too quick to posit quarrel outside of the norms of just conversation sure. because it seems to me that quarrels are also highly structured mm-hmm. and one thing that's in fact i think that gets lost when you reduce things to text is the uh, the norms and conventions underlying whatever quarrel that you're having so i think these are all whether it's in the court of law or whether it's in a business setting uh whether it's a street protest mm-hmm. right you only it only makes at least for certain kinds of calls it only makes sense to engage when some parameters are present and equally available uh to both parties are you saying even quarrels need norms of some sort yeah i think like quarrels only function in the background of some norms because otherwise you're not talking to each other or you you can yeah, completely disengage past each other uh mm-hmm. yeah so i feel like in fact maybe what the grisin framework just needs to be expanded to make more of a sense of uh the quite i think detailed and subtle norms mm-hmm. so i'm thinking of my own field so uh analytic philosophy mm-hmm. is a famously gladiatorial kind of discipline and of you know, the language you use is very much you know this is a devastating counter example or <laughs> you know this is that that uh it's a very you know kill or be killed kind of model right but what you find is that inside the seminar room you can be raising your hand and saying look i think your argument is flawed for abc reasons and how could you not see this would you leave the seminar room and then you have a beer and you chat and it's it's seen as it's not taken personally and the same might must happen in adversarial courts of law or in business settings so that's that tells me that there's at least a certain set of areas where Are you, you don't take quarrels personally are you saying that's an element personally. of performance that's not what you're saying i'm saying that for it to be possible mm. to have like a really genuine head on head quarrel mm-hmm. and nevertheless leave the arena of the quarrel and be able to relate to the other person you know with respect or as a human being that's a phenomenon which i think is true all over in all areas of life and for that to be possible there must be some norms and conventions governing you know separating out the other person's view from who that person is uh so i think it's quite structured and it's quite institutional but in in a setting like that it would be play acting right um well you have a point of view which is not to say that you leave your point of view behind and then go ahead and have a beer but what are the pi- fights that you pick up how does one decide that i mean there are limits to tolerance at the end of it isn't there so can you know i would think that it just depends upon what the context is mm-hmm. so uh, in the philosophy seminar room i would think or this this tradition of philosophy I mean, it'd be very boring not to have any quarrels. Yeah. You know what? What would be the point of uh, of reading somebody you don't want to argue with? Uh, but on the other hand, you wouldn't want to take those. I mean, I think academics in some ways breaks down when 
you start interpreting this or you start, you know, making things personal which are not in, intended to be personal. So I think it's that, that space, having that space where you can have a quarrel without investing certain aspects of yourself. Sure. Uh, is, I think, really valuable. And it's very easy to lose also, I think. Sure. And what do you have to say to this very interesting point that's so made about how there being two sides, two very distinct sides to um, a situation where justice is played out or enacted? Um, I mean, it, it could have been any other way, right? But um, that's that's more or less how justice functions all over the world and it's worked that way for many, many centuries. Is Are there alternate conceptions of how... Um, I mean, when you think of two opposing views coming together... Um, are there, are, are there alternate conceptions of how justice can be rendered? I think so. No, I think, so I think you know, maybe this can be a flip side of this issue of things. when things become so highly institutionalized, then in some sense one thing that that thing is doing is closing off other possibilities. Right? So the Supreme Court, I mean, there may well be situations like the King Solomon type of situation, right, where the right thing to do is to let the debate die or, mm-hmm. you know, just give each other a hug or something like that, right? And, and that maybe this goes back to what you were saying about the non-verbal aspects of things. But when you have an institution like a court, it's no longer available to the court to, to do that kind of thing because in some ways you're prisoners of the, the set of institutional norms that you have. And so I think there's something to be said for also a more freewheeling kind of, let's step out of this current paradigm of uh, just you know adversarial transactions and step back to, well, what are the things that people are agreeing with? Uh, I, I imagine you know mediation is one alternative kind of picture. In mediation, I take it what you're doing is you're trying to step back and seeing what do the parties have in common, what are the common interests. So negotiators make this distinction between uh, focusing on interests versus focusing on positions. Mm-hmm. Where quarrels are mean? about... Well, so a quarrel is about a position. I want so much money in this transaction and you want to give me so much money. Or... I want this grade, so I just finished grading at IIT, and you know, you're willing to give me this grade. So now it's a negotiation, how much are you willing to bend? And once the positions are articulated, then any deviation from the position brings your ego into place, so there's only going to be one loser or one winner. Whereas forcing, focusing on interest means you step back one level. Okay, what is our common interest in a teacher-student interaction? It's, let's say, to find a way of fairly ranking and evaluating a bunch of people. So given that common interest, what is the, you know, how can we proceed in a way that's now a joint enterprise? That's so what started out as, a, as an adversarial enterprise, I think can be converted to the idea of a joint enterprise. But I think a court, in fact, the, the, the sad thing about courts is that they come in the way of that. Yeah, no, if I may just chime in and take a step back and go to another forum, again involving the law, a forum that writes the law. Uh, that does exactly what uh, you just described. There are multiple views, and then you figure out what's the least common denominator that we can agree on, and that's how you end up with a law, for example. like That's what parliaments do. That's what lawmaking uh, uh, bureaucracy does when it invites public consultation, that you try and say, what can we get to agree on as a society? Leave out the controversial parts. But again, there have to be some underlying principles there, so greater common Yeah, that's right. So there is an institutionalized environment even for that mm-hmm. uh, and one example of that would be the law making side of it sure. rather than the law enforcing side of it that's interesting where mm-hmm. multiple segments of society have entrenched positions but then you say okay what is the least we can do to resolve this quarrel in a manner that all of us can live with it and which is why you also tend to see the rules of engagement very often average 
because mm. most rules are average because they're based on meeting the least acceptable mm. uh, elements across the board. Mm. There too, of course, uh, you know, it's a society, and therefore one view prevails over another in varying degree. But lawmaking generally takes that form of trying to meet middle ground. But you know, just to uh, jump back there, it's quite interesting that even in lawmaking context, this goes back to your point about uh, you know reason versus persuasion. We make a very big distinction between certain forms of persuasion which are just illegitimate. For instance, you know, bribing the opposite side to come and agree with you, you know, or this idea of horse trading. Uh, so there's a kind of distinction we make again in that particular context between the sorts of inducements and persuasions that are legitimate, and maybe they're the ones that appeal to reason, let's say, or that start from some position of, of good faith, and the ones that are illegitimate because they appeal to force, let's say, or they appeal to you know bribery. And I think it's a very interesting theoretical question to ask, what are those, what is the set of things you're not allowed to use as bargaining tools yeah. in a certain uh, conversational context? I think, uh, uh, you know, very interesting points have been made. So I'll only uh, take those points uh, which to me are of theoretical, Please. You know, significant theoretical interest for a linguist. Sure. Uh, one is, see, suppose somebody says that Grice's theory was about conversation. Is quarrel a conversation? So that's an interesting question. But then the, the modern way of theorizing is that for varieties of interactions, let's say quarrel, let's say, you know, sort of information dissemination, let's say some other teaching. I mean, you know, so let's say there are, you know, interactions of all kinds. What so, is a conversation? Huh, so a conversation is, you know, sharing of information, mm -hmm. uh, basically. So as I said, uh, I mean, it is basically human beings are rational. That's what Grice says, human beings are rational. So conversation is a rational activity. Mm -hmm. And rational activity would mean that, you know, they are mutually helpful. Mm -hmm. So this roughly, let's say this is conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, is it fair, one can ask, that uh, we apply this model and, uh, you know, and try and say that coal doesn't fit in. But then the answer to this is, now there will be several types of interactions. Mm -hmm. So shall we have a theory of interaction for everything, for all different things, one theory for coal, one theory for that, or so mm -hmm. something else, or shall we have one theory? Mm -hmm. Now, probably... Probably it is, you know, as I said, that the whole, if we want to stick to Grice, maybe the Gricean notion uh, of uh, interaction, not merely conversation, has to be extended. But then if they are extended, then how do we build in the parameters? So that becomes an interesting theoretical question. So that is, so let me leave this matter for the present at that. Sure. So, so you know, so, and then we believe, I mean, all of us believe that today, Saying something that, okay, uh, you know, um, I mean, we can have a general theory of interactions out of, uh, from which, uh, of which conversation would be one and uh, call would be another, etc., etc. Okay? Sure. So one, one can say like that. But at the same time, one would like to say, okay, so would such a theory, right, is this kind of broadening sustainable? You know, suppose there are all kinds of contradictions uh, suppose you want to broaden in order to resolve those contradictions and arrive at a general theory. Is the theory capable of handling it? Now, this is this is uh, this is not this is a, probably a, both a theoretical and, and and kind of empirical question. For example, Sanskrit language has a different uh, subject object word order, and Hindi has different uh, Eskimo language has different and all that. But we still try to arrive in generative linguistics at a theory, uh, you know, 
which does not posit different theories of grammar for different languages. So can we do that uh, in this domain, which is a much more difficult domain than, uh, you know, because genitive theory operates at the level of abstraction. Here we are dealing with direct, you know, human interaction. Uh, so, you know, so maybe for various reasons, so th this is a little more, this will be pretty more difficult. So anyway, that's one thing. So what are the parameters? Unless we specify those parameters and work out the details, a general idea is not sufficient. Mm. Because, you know, one would not know mm. how to evaluate it, you know. So, I mean, so, so to that degree of detail, one has to come. Mm. The, other, uh, the other point is, uh, you know, a very interesting thing is that, you see, Grice could conceptualize what would mean, what would be some kind of an ideal conversation. Okay, you know, I mean, it will, I mean, one will give only that much information that is required and not more, not less. One would give that much information about which one is sure. I mean, no untruthfulness. One has to give relevant information. One has to give politely, etc., etc. So let's say there is a model. Every conversation, really, many conversations would violate this. This kind Correct. of conversation would not and be there. And not all violating then, conversations are yeah, quarrels. And, and they are not non-conversations. They are not mm. ill-formed. They are well-formed. But mm. then implications are there. But implication theory, let's not go into. Mm. You know, th that is where the implication theory comes in. But let's, you know, simplify this and say at this point of time that Grice had an idea of what an idealized conversation is like, though we know that these idealized conversations are not really there in real life, except barring a few cases. Okay, they will not be there. So he has a way of handling that. Similarly, can we think of an idealized quarrel? The idealized quarrel would mean what is sayable, what is not sayable, what are the cultural parameters, what are the general you know, sort of uh, across cultural, you know, more universal parameters. So. If we, since we do not have an idea as of now as to what an idealized, not ideal quarrel, idealized quarrel would be like, you know, in terms of what is the upper bound of that theory, the lower bound of that theory, what is it that it can, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, what are the parameters, etc., etc. Since we do not have that, it is very difficult to, you know, sort of start uh, thinking along uh, at, you know, describing a notion of quarrel. Okay, that's one. And, uh, but the point is that these topics, to the best of my knowledge, these, let us call them tentatively negative interactions, although, you know, there's nothing negative about this, they're all, they're all interactions. Sure. Nothing negative, but, you know, let's say culturally negative interactions, I put the blame on the cultural, the culture <laughs> side. So, so suppose we say that, then we, you know, then as far as I'm concerned, as far as my reading goes, hardly any work has been done on these things. Most of the work in linguistic literature in the last many years has been on politeness. Impoliteness is a topic which has been, you know, just being talked about, you know, maybe last 10, 15 years. So quarrel is a topic and, you know, these questions about quarrel and all that have not been attacked. Okay. You know, so, so we need to explore these. It's interesting. Yeah. Sure. And then at this point of time, you can, only, you can only explore. And this very interesting point that you made about writing, I think this is very interesting that, you know, sort of writing has almost taken as much... Uh, you know, has Spaces. become as important as a mode of communication as speech. But then, as you rightly said, there is still a difference in the sense that, you know, I mean, when, when somebody actually quarrels, the contours of the face, they, you know, there is a change in the contours, the, the tone, the angry tone, the angry... It's multimodal, the, the there are many more things. The multimodal. Mm. So, in writing, it's not easy to capture them. And when you try to capture them, they look sanitized. So, whereas... So I think what you said now, it, it, it's, it's very interesting. So which means, what are we doing? There are two different theories of, you know, call, call in speech and call in writing. It's evolving. You know, so it's interesting. And if they are not, 
See, then uh, again, what are the parameters? What are the differentiating things? Now, how do we work out them in detail to some level of formalization? It's interesting. Can I ask a question? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Which is just as a, you know, you, you've spoken quite a lot about theories, theories of conversation, theories of quarrels. Yeah. But what is the task of a linguistic theory? I, mean, I guess I'm not entirely clear yeah. what yeah. the what yeah. problem is being solved by a theory yeah. and what are the parameters by which one would evaluate a theory? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, see, uh, there are two aspects of linguistic, two sides to linguistics. Right from any, I know you, you think of any culture. Linguistics is a civilizational subject. Okay, right? you think of any any culture. The basic, whenever people have written grammars, and that is the linguistic activity, whenever people have written grammars, then, you know, sort of, uh, so they have talked about the structure. And generally, they have talked about the structure up to the level of sentence. So that is the structure. Now, language use, if you distinguish between language structure and language use, language use is a topic which was, you know, which people only casually referred to. In, uh, in 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 writing because probably because in all cultures the spoken form was considered to be not serious enough for for investigation for serious investigation so that is a cultural thing again it is only recently that people are talking about you know discourse linguistics that is linguistics above the sentence level and all that so let us distinguish between you know sort of language use and language structure in language structure i can give an answer you know because uh, so i can say okay given a particular theory I know how, I mean, how to evaluate that theory. You know, in, in Chomsky and Paradigm, for example, we can evaluate that theory in certain ways. How simple it is. Can we sort of reduce it to further simplicity? What kind of claims that it, uh, does it make with respect to cognition? So we can, we can make, you know, I mean, we, there, there are th- ways of evaluating this, okay? But when it comes to theory of language use, the theories themselves have not been formulated yet. People are talking about them. You know, the questions are being are, yeah, are, are just being raised. I have so a question around that. I mean, prima- uh, yeah. When you look at language use uh-huh. and the word, the phrase parliamentary conduct or uh-huh. parliamentary language yeah, yeah. is now an integral part of yeah. uh, language yeah. worldwide. Yeah. So is there not a kind of a forum uh, enforced norm on language use yeah that forums for discourse yeah. are developed for themselves. Yeah. So this is so, actually a kind of way of tyrannizing, you know, a form of tyranny of language. You see, whose decision is it to say that this is parliamentary, this is not parliamentary? Who's the decision? members of that forum. Yeah, members. Are, who are the members? You know, what are their interests? Why should they say that certain, certain words, you know, which we use in daily life, right. okay, cannot not be, used. be used? Why yeah. should it not be? I mean, if if we use them in daily life, what is so insulting about if you know, like the I mean, you know, the word that you mentioned some time back, okay, you know, what is wrong with that word? And no, I mean, the, the, let's say let let me give an example, you know. More so, Professor Patnaik, just just, just one yeah. second, you know, the 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 Odia word for buttocks, okay, somebody in the Odia assembly used the word buttocks, and uh, you know the Odia word for buttocks. And the speaker, who was one of the greatest intellectuals of, you know, of, I mean, of the 20th century, he's no more. Now, he said, no, you can't say that this word, word is unparliamentary because this 18th century poet who has written the Mahabharata has said this. So, you see, the, whose decision is it to say that this is parliamentary, this is how civilized language is like, and this is uncivilized language? This is, again, a class difference. Yeah. Sorry, sir. No, it's interesting. I think, you know, in many of these quarrels and situations, in a way, the... I mean, they obviously presuppose some kind of a norm or setting maybe, uh, but the way of final arbitration is not established maybe, right? I mean, that's why it gets quarrelsome. I think Arudra made a point about ego. Um, Very important point, yeah. Is is ego 
a part of quarrels necessarily i think at, I, I, a while ago agree. so mentioned that yeah, yeah. i think reasons are not a part yeah. of a quarrel um, no ego is important because you know when people quarrel i mean each one is trying as you said to assert you know sort of that i am right and others are wrong yeah. is there But ego speaking in, from a legal yeah. yeah. professional okay. point of view yeah. mm. uh, it is true that it's highly egotistical to have a position mm-hmm. and often people are prey to associating their entire personalities with their ideas yeah uh, that's when your position gets entrenched and then the ability to resolve the quarrel gets lessened unless you detach your personality from your idea you will never be able to give up that idea and embrace a varied and an amended idea coming from the person you're engaging with so but it's very human to indeed get entrenched with your idea and let's take a buddhist sort of concept right i mean where you're taught to uh look at knowledge as your master rather than you as the owner of that knowledge as being the master uh but let, let's take the tibetan school of uh, learning even on buddhist precepts a debate a quarrelsome colorful debate is an integral part of the training right where you make a point you defend your point the person you're arguing with is entitled to challenge you on reason his attempt is only to try you contra- uh, try to make you contradict yourself mm. something you already said or you contradict common sense and mm. that's the training Mm. and it's very very colorful if you if you see the dramatic manner in which those debates are conducted mm. it's like uh, virtually saying what sort of a buddhist are you mm. if this is the <laughs> view you hold challenging the defender to come up with better and better arguments to defend it so there is this rich interface between ownership of an idea because unless you own an idea how do you take a position but equally how deeply do you own it that the idea starts owning you rather than you own the idea and, you know, and finally you have to appeal to some higher principle or something higher for you to give in isn't it uh, often the higher principle is what you and the person you're engaging with you agree to disagree sometimes that's the entire socratic method where you kind of try to get to the truth through a dialectical kind of process right. but it's not easy the ego is always entangled somewhere right i mean when you when you do, when you look at litigations when you look at courtroom dramas is ego a big part of all of that or it's a big part so much so that very often the ego of the lawyer who's only an agent of the principal who's a disputant to begin with <laughs> takes over the substance <laughs> of the resolution So you know you have the agent who's your agent to conduct the fight and this goes all the way this goes to the equivalent of the supreme court it it it's across societies it's very human that uh, there are i mean why are there so many lawyer jokes why are, <laughs> why is the profession uh, such a butt of ridicule because uh, you stop every agent at some point morphs into the principal and starts thinking he's driving the quarrel and the reality is That's his ego drives the quarrel and therefore How much of an ownership how much of an ego does the principal have that's very to interesting to pull the agent back is one of the determinants of resolution of that quarrel so parties can get carried away with a dispute or they could say hey, wait a minute you all done your best we actually going to settle and some societies in fact have so many settlements precisely for this reason the principals also have an ego and they realize okay we've given it our best now we need to settle mm. and that's how those quarrels get settled mm Mm, it's very interesting. I think this, this distinction between agents and principles, and how one can confound one for the other. Where do swear words come from? I mean, this question is addressed to all of you. 
um where do they come from what does the linguist have to say to that professor patnaik and o- over a longish period of time if you look at i mean the number of swear words or whatever the usage of swear words 1000 years ago till today um it's it's a form of would you would you agree that it's some yeah. kind of expression of violence in some form it's just cultural ah, it's an expression it is. of violence that's true but you know if you ask me this question as a linguist where do the swear words come from i won't be able to answer sure. because linguistics doesn't uh, you know doesn't have an answer to origin of words and uh, but there know, is something yeah. magical about them almost because yes. they linger they yes. don't go yes. away and yes. they, they capture that, yes i they believe they capture imagination yes i fan. believe that the swear words and uh, even you know sort of uh, words of blessings and all that you know they have a magical quality mm. you know that so they they there but this is a very difficult question to answer as to uh, what how they originated why they became so you know i mean that uh, origin of words is something i i cannot answer any questions about that partly because linguistics modern linguistics you know cannot even deal with an issue like this interesting and uh, rudra maybe we go to another point that we touched a while ago justice i mean do you see justice as a process of conflict and resolution um, conflict resolution mechanism well i guess some sorts of questions of justice arise in context of conflict i guess other kinds of questions of justice might arise for instance um, in terms of the justice of distributions right so you allocate a certain amount of money justice mm-hmm. yeah or questions having to do with um uh punitive justice one wouldn't necessarily see those you know so if you think that people deserve certain kinds of punishments and you know justice demands the death penalty let's say in some particular case mm-hmm. you might not see that as a question about conflict resolution but mm-hmm. uh it's interesting to me that at least the word conflict seems to be very natural to use in the context of justice with the, the not the word quarrels so i'm wondering now whether quarrels no, and conflicts should be different. uh should be distinguished and how are i think all this while as we've been discussing quarrel and some of the other things we kind of imagine a two person system uh, but how complex or weird does it get as it becomes an n person system um do, do you have anything to say to that but we look at it from a, a regulatory dispute point of view i mean most disputes where it's a dispute against the individual and the state yeah uh, i don't see it as a two person conflict yeah uh, say a commercial dispute between two people who have agreed to do a commercial transaction could be a two man conflict but a dispute between the state and an individual is always a dispute between the individual and society and the world and the and the society that he's part of so i mean even if you look at it uh, from a bertrand russell's analysis point of view that that's an area of conflict that's as old as humankind when we agree to organize ourselves into a society there's bound to be a conflict between the individual member of the society and what society's come to stand for the society could be tyrannical in manner of usage manner of conduct and those conflicts are perpetual so it's not always bilateral uh and those conflicts indeed uh, get handled by two individuals a representative of society and a representative of the individual and those individuals tend to make it like a bilateral uh conflict sure but it it's not it plays out that way it's, it's not it it plays out that way but it's not what it is like take any crime for example mm a crime is not about the victim and the perpetrator at all in the justice sense it's about society and the perpetrator mm. so when you punish uh, a perpetrator of a crime the victim actually gets nothing it's not a 
retributive system that most societies have right. some societies do take into account the pardon by a victim yeah but uh, many societies don't that's very interesting you cannot mm. pardon a crime because society takes over uh, from you so mm. it ceases to be bilateral in a lot of situations mm-hmm. interesting i'm interested about the the swear word uh, conversation and you know i mean the way it's evolved i mean it's also from uh, from being an expression of frustration and anger and aggression uh over time it can also partake the character of what you mentioned a little while ago about the non literal meaning yeah. like the usage of an seemingly aggressive abusive swear word as an endearment would be a non literal yeah, yeah, yeah. usage of swear <laughs> yeah. word and i'm very interested to know yes yes it happens where the linguistic they are one of the most flexible connotative words you can find and remarkably yes, flexible yeah. yes it happens you know and there you apply the theory of implication that let us say you know in a certain situation a and b are there and they are using swear words to each other and all that okay but then nobody takes offense so that nobody seems to take offense you know gives rise to uh, the the implication that they probably uh, the words probably don't have the same, same sense in which same they have in ordinary conversation so so you know you you work out the implications so so that's right uh, and maybe political correctness has a role to play in that right yes, i mean yes, yes. it would have been completely acceptable to use some phrases 100 years ago in a dispute between people of varying colors of skin or varying yeah, yeah. linguistic persuasion yeah. mm-hmm. today it becomes unacceptable yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. over time i guess society evolves yeah. its tyranny of yeah. <laughs> what yeah, would yeah. be acceptable I, I, usage I, I, yeah i'm really you know one of the fundamental questions of interest to me is this question of tyranny of language in usage that doesn't apply to theoretical issue of uh, sure. you know structure it very much applies to a theory of uh, language use you know mm-hmm. i'm really concerned about it and uh, i don't know answers of course that's a different thing but these are things which really bother me whose decision is it to say that this is impolite language or this polite language is there a vested interest What is the best way to win a quarrel, Arudra? Uh, oh, I was going to ask. Uh, Please, uh, you can take that one, and then take we that can one, come, and come to this. Sure. Um, I was going to say this question about this goes back to your question about bilateral versus multilateral uh, quarrels. But you know, it seems this question about the tyranny of language. I mean, it works both ways, right? So the question of who's being silenced. So if you think the the term political correctness is used. In, typically in a pejorative kind of way that look we're no longer allowed to say certain things that we'd like to say mm. but in saying those things presumably other people are being silenced to you know uh, by the expression of certain views that maybe demean a particular group and maybe norms of political correctness at least start off their life as a way of uh, uh being some kind of public acknowledgement of say past slights or past wrongs so to say that it's the silencing of those terms through political correctness that that's the only tyranny involved that's not so clear to me because perhaps uh, those mechanisms of silencing words um, come out of trying to allow other people a certain kind of voice and there you can see that it's a, it's a multilateral thing that right? it's not just the two parties to the dispute but other mm. other parties interested in the kinds of conversations that one can have uh, on the it's very interesting um, and Yeah, I guess on the question of of winning a quarrel, yeah. what's the best way to win a quarrel? I, give us sure, some I'm give us sure. some strategies for it. I'm not sure that you can win quarrels. <laughs> I feel like maybe if you win a quarrel, you've lost. Right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe the thing to do is to step back and or step out of it. Um, yeah, I'm. I'd be curious what certainly in in academics. 
again, I feel like so boring to have won a quarrel. Like, what would be the point? Just, uh, <laughs> you know, then you have to sort of hang their up best, your... Their best left festering. Well, but again, why should that be the... Why should that be the frame, right? The frame could be the quarrel part of it, the quarrelsome part of a conflict might be the manifestation of something else. You know, you're both parties interested in getting at something and because your humans, you know, emotions come up and you duke it out or whatever. But if the... You know, this philosopher Robert Nozick had this idea that, you know, you could have the the devastating argument that just kills your opponent, right? And just like, they actually just physically <laughs> die, you know? Right. <laughs> that's like a very hollow victory, right? <laughs> Having this argument with somebody and they have a heart attack because I'm so good at, you know, I just seems like, oh, I, you know, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> That's so I, I don't you, know. Maybe you, winning you're being a quarrel, gentle. You don't yeah. want to vanquish your opponent. I'm just saying. I'm not sure that there'd be much point. At least it depends on what we're fighting about, right? But sure. Um, I find I get much more interest out of reading like you know advice columns and self-help books and stuff. That's uh, kind of data on which to theorize. And I remember reading on some advice column this wonderful piece of advice from the, one of the commentators uh-huh. who said, you know, like being right about something is like one of the most useless <laughs> things <laughs> you could be in, any, in, a, in a quarrel situation. I think, you know, I I think the right. fun thing would be to be wrong about something and then win that quarrel. Yeah, or to be, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, that's in the frame of, uh, of wanting to win. Interesting. But what are the strategies? I think uh, I like the the, the point uh, Radhra makes about uh, this frame. Mm. Uh, language has come to accept as synonymous mm. quarrel and arguments. Yeah. But uh, to me, it's an argument that you win, mm. and it's a quarrel that you that exists. Mm. Uh, it's perpetual. I mean, a quarrel mm. between people of differing colors, differing races. They'll continue as long as human humankind continues. Mm. But arguments over measures, arguments over elements of it, you may win some, you may lose some. Mm. So I think there is a nuanced distinction between an argument and a quarrel. And I'm reminded of a school poem uh, called The Village School Master. Mm. <laughs> I don't remember the poet, sure. but it had a line saying... Goldsmith, Oliver Goldsmith. Goldsmith. <laughs> Although vanquished, he could argue still. <laughs> Yeah. was a one line which used to, you know, <laughs> stick out in my head because I used to be told that you're such a quarrelsome boy mm. that all the vanquished you keep arguing still. So <laughs> a vanquishing sort of uh, uh, gladiatorial uh, uh, imagery. There's a certain kind of equality almost to a quarrel, isn't it? When two people are quarreling, there's a certain kind of equality. E- even if Equality only in the fact that each of you has a different view. Mm. But very often quarrels break out between unequals. I mean, it's often of the unequal nature that so leads this, to a quarrel. So it's the seeming apparent equality amongst unequals uh, that a quarrel... That's right. The, the capacity to pick a quarrel is what's equal. Mm. Uh, but the strengths of your positions may really vary. Mm. And it's the arguments you bring to bear to make your side of the quarrel look better is what may potentially mold resolution of a of an of a dispute uh, this has become synonymous today but to me there is a very clear distinction perhaps even etymologically mm-hmm. between what constitutes an argument and what constitutes, and what a, constitutes quarrel. a quarrel of course to me quarrel is absence of reason <laughs> mm. argument is everything about reasoning mm. and persuasion and convincing either the counterparty directly or convincing a subject authority to enforce your point of view in an adversarial environment. But an argument is what you win. A quarrel, I think, uh, exists. 
So just to jump into that, actually, you know, if that's true, and that sounds, there seems to be something plausible about that, then it seems like the wrong thing to do when you're in the middle of a quarrel is to try and argue the other, you know, with the other person. Right? It seems like what's going on is then something else, and maybe there's something emotional or something where, you know, certain other buttons. Uh, because if a quarrel is essentially non-rational, then I mean, how do you win it with reason? I mean, of course, you can argue your way out of it. So I know you're just playing with words here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the way. non-rational parts remain unresolved. But why should right. that be? Why should why is why is it only either argue by means of reason or leave it be unresolved because they're non-rational elements? Why aren't, why aren't there ways of dealing with the non-rational elements in any dispute or conversation? Yes, one of my favorite quotes is: uh, "Matters of taste are indisputable." So someone likes more salt in the food, someone likes less salt in the food. You could have a quarrel over whether it's more delicious with extra salt or lesser salt. You can never resolve. So matters of taste as opposed to what? As opposed to matters of... Matters of taste as opposed to matters of reason. I mean, you can, you can for example, uh, whether a particular portrait looks good or not mm-hmm. can completely vary from person to person. You can have a quarrel. That quarrel is, needs to exist. Mm-hmm. It'll be a perpetual quarrel. Mm-hmm. Whether Mona Lisa looks beautiful or ugly, mm-hmm. homely or attractive, mm. is a immortal quarrel. It can never be resolved mm. because it's a matter of the senses, how the human mind perceives uh, the beauty or the absence of it in a visual object, the taste or the absence of it in a uh, in a in a food object, sure. uh, and so on and so forth. But there could be some areas of life where such a difference doesn't matter. Oh, so not all disagreements need so, to be quarrels. Right? So maybe that's maybe right. make, so every, perpetual disagreements. That's right. Disagree, mm-hmm. But people can quarrel over disagreements and you get so entrenched and carried away by whether Mona Lisa is attractive or homely that you could, you could argue all day long and end up even throwing uh, files and papers at each other. That depends uh, on the interest as to work. Sometimes these debates or quarrels or whatever are highly remunerative in, in I some think, form you know, of I may, could I? Please. <laughs> yeah. See, a uh, couple of things. Again, you know, I'm in, uh, sort of, I'm a linguist and I'm interested in quarrel. Okay. So the question of resolution, when, how to, you know, resolve a quarrel, how to win a quarrel, you know, when these questions of resolution arise, my interest is just there. Because once there is a resolution, there is no quarrel. So I'm studying quarrel. The other thing is that kind of dialogue that you talked about. You know, we have this tradition of debate. That's a very rich tradition in our culture. Let us start Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is not actually a disciple asking a question to the guru. It's actually can be reduced to a debate. You know, fundamental questions of interest are raised by both, raised and discussed. Upanishadic tradition. So all this is a very nice debate tradition. Uh, but as you, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm entirely in agreement with you that we have to distinguish between quarrel and uh, debate, Argu- debate, argument. argument and all that. Argument can be won. Quarrel, there is no way to win an argument fully. Uh, I don't know, you know, sort of what, what is the way. But the, the argument questions that we have been talking about, the rational discourses, argument questions can be handled by the existing conversational theories. We simply have to call them conversations. In fact, in Upanishad, you know, we can, if we can stretch the word a little and allow certain kinds of uh, dialogues, you know, that is one person raising questions, the other person answering. Suppose we, we can say that, okay, there are special forms of conversation that can be handled. The moment quarrel comes, a debate reduces to a quarrel or an argument reduces to a quarrel. The personal element comes in, the anger element comes in, the swear, the, words. You know, so swear words come in. You know, when those things happen, that becomes a different uh, 
you know sort of situation altogether so, so professor patnaik what's the future what's the future 500 years out do you think there will be a theory for quarrels is it possible do you feel optimistic i know you've mentioned it a few times you see uh, you know <laughs> i mean uh, some 10 15 years ago in the 70s okay uh, you know when i was doing chomsky and linguistics the joke was that uh, what the view that chomsky held uh, you know this week the next week he has a different view about some matters of language the field was developing so fast mm. now these days the fields develop so fast that it is very difficult to imagine what kind of uh, you know i mean resolutions would arise and in particular in questions like this you see when we abstract away lot and study a phenomenon in its abstraction i think you know there the, the entire thing that there you know the, the very different there i think the see science or quest for knowledge is 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 not something which comes to a close it's a kind of self perpetuating activity knowledge yeah. quest not just science so here here we are dealing with a much more difficult question about language and use and you know we are not even sure as to uh, sort of what our uh, theoretical tools are what our descriptive tools are so I don't know how you know you said 500 years hence you know I can't or even say years or 5 yeah, years I think 50 matter. years hence maybe people will try and look at this question of creativity you know because something happens and this creativity sort of comes in because some of the quotes that I have read quote on quote read because you know sort of like mahabharata quotes there no time for that but some of these mahabharata quotes that I have read in sarala mahabharata then you know I mean, they're extremely sort of uh, I mean you know the the, the way the quote sort of takes place are very rich and uh, uh, you know so maybe i mean we would be able to uh, and and that gives us an idea of creativity you say something but i say something entirely different but closely something, connected something it is not that in a, yeah, it is not that. that in a call there is no rational uh, quote unquote reasoning nothing like that because you know if somebody says that uh, x is a bad man i do not say in answer to this that oh you know i mean my forefathers were uh, great no even when we call even when we call you know there is a kind there's of there's an element of coherence there is a kind so. of coherence mm. so so and coherence is a question of rationality because coherence is connected to intelligibility interesting so so things like this so so so, so i don't know what the state of research would be but i'm looking forward to a kind of research which handles these questions at the level of cognition language cognition mm-hmm. you know and i also look up look up to research which deals with the creativity aspects of language use the creativity aspect as interesting so maybe we go to you what's the future of the way cases are argued the way agreements are negotiated is it likely to change in ways that are fundamental in the in the long term future do you see any so i think basic engagement between humans uh, conceptually will be the same mm-hmm. the media of engagement of fast changing uh, which is the point i made earlier about sure the written overtaking the spoken Mm-hmm. uh but equally i'd be very interested to see how political systems impact uh quarrels uh and conversations uh just because we are on a time element uh, you can't quarrel about ataturk's legacy in turkey it's just illegal to do it you yeah. can't question the statistics in the holocaust in germany yeah it's illegal to do it you can't express views about shivaji uh, or uh, satyajit ray or mahatma gandhi in different parts of india uh, beyond a certain uh, tolerance threshold yeah so how the political dynamic will dictate the terms on which you may quarrel which is why i do agree that the tyranny of the rule setting for what quarrels can be had and what can never be quarrel 
if any law postulates that something can never be quarrel then you essentially saying that reason can't be applied anymore all yeah. reason has to fail then it becomes an article of faith yeah so it's all interplay between what faith dictates that you can or cannot quarrel may or may not quarrel would be a very interesting dynamic in that evolution uh, over the next you know 5 centuries or or 2 centuries or even 50 years that's very uh, there is a huge political context to how this will evolve and any study uh, of an interplay between the political context and uh, dialogue uh, within society is something i'd be very keen to look at interesting arudra maybe we go to you and we'll probably bring it to a close there what's the future you know i'm i'm very pessimistic about the future in general but um, as far as the future uh, in this narrow sort of academic domain just to in this narrow area of arguments and quarrels yeah so so it's in the context of let's yes. say uh, my field let's say philosophy just to go back to grice so grice was a philosopher by i think by training but uh, in sort of the heyday of oxford philosophy which is known to be extremely quarrelsome and very very aggressive sure. and he writes this really nice autobiographical piece where he really deprecates the Uh, the extent to which there's this kind of bad blood and quarreling and argument um and my sense is that at least people have become a little bit exhausted in this kind of devastating counter example you know i'm going to knock your argument uh, i went to a conference once where the first question questioner said to the talk, the speaker all i see in your paper is a cascading series of mistakes <laughs> <laughs> wait you know you hear that and where can you you know make progress um, so yeah Uh, so There's I know rejoined it to something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't take it forward. So I feel somewhere that at least in in this narrow philosophical world that people are a little bit exhausted or can see that it's not leading very far. It it leads you to be very careful in certain kinds of ways and there's a certain kind of intellectual rigor that arises. But um maybe replacing quarrel with some sense of play so to to maintain conflict in mind. But what do you mean by that when you say play? Well, this you know i guess goes back to so many of the things that we've talked about we see conflict or well quarrels is clearly culturally negative right but conflict doesn't have to be conflict and disagreement don't sure and the buddhist example that som was giving mm. uh you can think of lots of playful ways of inhabiting conflict sure um wanting to you know what are games right games are or whole set of games are structured conflicts which you want to enter into because they speak to something about you know human beings and our desire to excel in certain ways so yeah i guess i would hope for a a more playful approach to conflict where one maybe checks one's ego out of the door or, or maybe brings it in in very narrow kinds of ways interesting interesting thank you thank you to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you take care okay. thank you so much thank you very much thank you